in their own weird way, I consider scary Reddit stories to be a kind of contemporary folklore. Now, not the obviously fictional ones, not the creepy pastas, not the no sleeps, which, though generally written to sound like true stories, are part of a deliberate and knowing attempt to produce spooky urban legend-like fiction. No, the ones I really like are the stories of less obvious provenance. The ones that show up on threads about hiking and camping, and that inject a creepy or unsettling note to the conversation. I never really know whether they're true or not, like all the best urban legends. As I've been preparing for a camping weekend myself, I've spent a bit of time on these threads once again recently, and I've come across one story that not only weirded me out, but also reminded me of various strands of folkloric belief from around the world, and sent me on a bit of an exploration to collect as many stories similar to this as I could. I'll tell the original story after the intro, but first I'd like to mention something about nomenclature. The usual folkloric name for the phenomena this episode is about is Stick Indians. Now, Indian, of course, is an old-fashioned and often offensive term for Native Americans or First Nations peoples. During my time in the American Midwest, I did meet some folks, usually of the older generation, it must be said, who did self-identify as Indian. So, absolutely, some people do. And in this episode, I will tend to refer, for convenience, to the folkloric entities as Stick Indians, except where a regional name is more appropriate, as is sometimes the case. And I will refer to the groups of the actual people as Native Americans or First Nations peoples, again using regional names where they're appropriate. This is my best attempt to be as respectful as possible to all the different groups of people involved in this story. However, as usual, I am always pleased to receive polite corrections from folks who know better. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and for this tale of weird goings-on in deep forests, I've built a campfire outside the cabin in the woods here in wild, woolly West Cork. And on this dark night, I've cracked open a bottle of fine black IPA from Black's Brewing, made in Kinsale, County Cork. We're going to be talking about why you should never follow voices or lights you hear in the forest for this episode. Voices in the Woods, Forest Spirits of Ireland and North America. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. So I'm pleased to be back here at the campfire. I've just spent a little time pottering about in the woods because I've just set up my trail camera once again. If you're not a naturalist, uh, you might not be aware a trail camera is one of those cameras that you can strap to a tree and is set to be detected. By movement, so it will be triggered by any movement in the forest. Uh, should an animal of any sort come by, it should trigger the camera to take short photographs or videos. I've actually set it for video this time. Um, if you've been following recent episodes, I haven't had much luck yet, even though I'm, I'm fairly sure that there are deer, foxes, and potentially even badgers in this particular bit of forest. So with a bit of luck and perseverance, hopefully I'll get some of those. If I'm really lucky, perhaps I'll get something even stranger out there though hopefully not an example of the sort of uh, spirits we're going to be talking about in this episode. 
Now, as I mentioned before the intro, I am planning a camping trip and I've been spending a little bit of time on the Reddit threads connected with camping. And I love when a spooky story shows up on these because, yeah, you know, unlike the, you know, the creepypasta stuff, you never really know whether these ones are for real because they're on threads that are not dedicated to creating fictional spooky stories. And that, for me at least, uh, gives a certain thrill, a certain element of potentially these things are real. The other element is that, you know, when you're in the forest, when you're in the dark, when you're far away from civilization, every little thing can seem to have an added scary significance. So it is very likely that many of these things were, at least, seem to be real to the people to whom they occurred. So anyone who's ever been in a tent and had a, a, a small animal, perhaps, a, you know, a vole or a mouse or a fox pass by and uh, had it sound like some much larger, scarier animal, uh, you'll know just quite uh, how intense that feeling can be. So, this also reminded me of a few weird things I've heard myself over the years. So, I spent a couple of years working in the American Midwest, as I tell stories about often on the show. One of the reasons, one of the things that always comes back to me is how once we were a couple of days hike um, away from civilization, the people I was with, who was part of my job, where I would have to take groups out into the forest, they would often start telling weird stories at night and um, all of those little superstitions and ghost stories that are at the back of people's psyches tend to come out in those circumstances. And I've heard some pretty weird stuff. I've heard people telling people of, of uh, fairly wide backgrounds, actually. Some people with a, with a, a, Native, uh, a Native American background or people with European backgrounds have told different stories about the kind of entities that they expect to hear during the night. I've heard stuff about... Uh, versions of what uh, might be potentially called the, the, the skinwalkers is how they're referred to in, in the Western interpretations. Um, uh, people who can change their shape from animals to, to human and back again. And just a lot of stories about strange noises heard in the forest. If anyone's ever heard a two cougars when they meet in the forest, uh, they make absolutely incredible noises. Uh, really, ones that sound like a human kind of like yawning or moaning. It's a very spooky human-like sound. Here in Ireland, anyone who's ever heard a um, um, a fox screaming at night will probably have no... Uh, there'll be no mystery for them anymore as to where the legends of the Banshees probably come from because they produce a sound that sounds incredibly like a, a young woman screaming. Anyway, in the spirit of those kind of stories, uh, I'm going to read this Reddit story which I dug up and it's from somebody calling themselves Brooklyn Oatmeal Cookie. Now, here we go. He says... This will probably get buried, but two years ago, myself and two other people were ca camping in Yellowbottom, which is in the Cascades of Oregon. About 3am, I woke up hearing what sounded like a bunch of people having a campfire party. Nothing huge, not even scary, just talking, laughing, stuff like that. I was kind of pissed since we'd specifically come up to get away from the college kids and such, and now somebody had set up camp what sounded like less than 100 yards away but I couldn't see fire or light through the tent walls, and since that was my big concern, fire in the woods, I just kind of ground my teeth about it and went back to sleep. About an hour later, I wake up again. This time, somebody's let a little kid start crying, and it's really annoying. Like, not wailing, but just sniffles, that long-term crying that kids do. I listen for about five minutes, and since I'm not a monster, I've kind of got this prickly feeling that maybe there's trouble. You know, little kid crying all alone, where the hell are its parents, etc. 
and I started to get up and my friend who I thought was sleeping grabs my arm just about giving me a heart attack and says don't go out there just wait he knows the woods better than me and he sounded actually scared so I sit and wait and yeah a few minutes later the crying stops and the party starts back up but the weird thing is I can't really pinpoint now what direction the party's coming from because I was trying to tell if maybe it was a group who had found the kid and now they were all talking together but I couldn't tell what direction it was from. The party went on for about another hour just until dawn and then all of a sudden nothing like cut off in the middle of a laugh silence. I was completely freaked out by then and I think I might have made a noise when it just stopped like that. My friend, who hadn't even sat up the entire time, just said, Stick Indians, and then rolled over and fell back asleep. I got up when the sun was finally completely up and made coffee and kind of looked around, but I'm not brave like that and didn't go far. But there was nothing. No campfire. No tents I could see through the trees. Nothing. We packed up that day, and I asked him what a stick Indian was, and he wouldn't tell me. Had to come back and Google it. And even now, I'm not sure if what's online is true or made up or what. But if you look it up, apparently it's some kind of Yakina forest spirit that lures people out by making noises like crying babies or people having a party and then, I don't know, eats them or something. So that's my creepy thing in the woods. I don't have any proof, but people who know the Pacific Northwest, it was way up Yellow Bottom past the official camps on the left-hand fork of the main road, down that logging road and right by the river. The campsite with the huge fallen over dead trees. I've never been back there, no sir. So that's the reddit story that got me on this particular road. As usual with these things, look there's no way to find out that it's real, you just, I just pick the ones that somehow strike a chord with me. I like the detail, I like the fact that he's specific about where this happened. I like the fact that nothing too strange goes on that couldn't be explained by certain kinds of animals in the forest, particularly foxes, especially with the child crying. But really what stuck out to me was this sounds remarkably like various strands of particularly European folklore. And the mention of the name Stick Indian was something I hadn't come across before. And I was very interested to find out whether indeed there was a particular type of Native American belief or folklore that had connections to uh, similar European ones. Not necessarily because they were linked historically, but, you know, there are beliefs around the world which do seem to mirror each other, and there are similar... I think there are similar fears, similar hopes uh, from culture to culture that result in some of the same stories, or at least the same type of stories showing up. So the immediate thing this reminded me of uh, was Mirkwood from The Hobbit. So I... I would classify myself as a mid-level sort of a token enthusiast. I, I have more time for The Hobbit than I do for Lord of the Rings. I've read it far more times and I consider it a maybe a more concise version of the things that I think are good about Tolkien. Uh, but bear with me on this one. If, if anybody remembers the Mirkwood chapter from The Hobbit, that is when Bilbo and the uh, dwarves are making their way through Mirkwood, which is a a dark forest it's it, there's something wrong with it it's been it's been cursed or it is uh, somehow a sort of a bad luck forest and the elements of nature there are are negative they are problematic and dangerous and they're warned before they go into the forest not to stray from the path which is a deep deep folkloric motif and and as ever, anybody who has studied Tolkien knows he was uh, an antiquarian he was a medievalist he is 
taking from folklore and from fairy tales as much as he can, particularly particularly in The Hobbit. And what ends up happening is some mystical experiences happen to Bilbo and the dwarves during this time. And there's a bit of a flavor to this chapter, which is quite different from the rest of the book. So, you know, we've had this sort of high fantasy with the with the dwarves and the, you know, there's mention of trolls and humans and other races and everything seems to be fairly set. But we we come across elves in this chapter or what turns out to be elves, but they don't really seem like the kind of elves that we later come to know in Lord of the Rings. And this is maybe an earlier version, a more folkloric, a more mythical, a more fairy tale interpretation of the elves. And I think it's a bit of a giveaway that in early drafts of The Hobbit, Tolkien refers to the elves as fairies. So they are they are the same thing effectively in this in this early iteration of the Tolkienish elves. And what happens is the the party is crossing an enchanted stream one of them falls in i think it's bomber and he falls asleep and when he's asleep he dreams and when he finally wakes up he tells the others that he was dreaming about a a feast of mysterious sort of supernatural creatures who have a who are sitting in the forest eating and playing music and making merry and they have a king who wears a crown of leaves so again tapping into all sorts of folkloric fairy tale and even pagan mythology here it makes me think of the the figure of the green man which i've i've traced across uh, from from here in cork there's example victorian examples of it here in cork city but obviously much older ones from medieval churches and stuff uh, I've, which i've seen right across europe as far east um, as the balkans as it happened so a very common european motif of a man representing the forest representing the wilderness with uh, leaves for his hair for his nose uh, sometimes for a crown as well so I, I think this is some of the imagery that uh, Tolkien is, is working with here. But the dwarves start to hear voices at night in the forest. So they've been in the forest for days or for weeks and they're starving and they're hungry. And all of a sudden they start to hear laughter and part at the sounds of a, a party from off the trail. And they've been warned not to leave the trail. And then they start to see lights and campfires and three times... Their hunger drives them to step off the path and into the light. And they see this magical, mystical feast with the elves and the king and the food and the harps. And then as soon as they step into it, the lights go out and the dwarves are lost and blundering in the forest. And they can't find their way back to the path. So again, all these really classic folkloric fairy tale elements being hit here. It happens three times before the story comes to a climax. And the again, the elves here, instead of being just another race, as we come we come to know the elves in Tolkien's work as, you know, a little bit more in tune with the mystical realm than perhaps the other races, but they're still they're a known quantity. They're they're a group of people who have cities and um, have a culture and yes, they're a little bit strange and you know, their their relationship with the dwarves isn't great, but they're quite different to this this group of wood elves. I, I think Tolkien eventually sort of says that well the ones that show up in the, early on in the Hobbit in Mirkwood the reason one of the reasons they're different is is they're wood elves and they're kind of insular and aloof but I I, I also think that it, it you could interpret this as being he's drawing on a much older uh, sort of uh, 19th century reinterpretation of various uh, 
you know, potentially pagan motifs. The, you know, at, at a time when the various European nations were reinventing themselves and trying to cast back to their history to create a mythical version of their own past. And with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, I mean, Tolkien is, is known to have been attempting to create a deliberately English mythology for a country which he felt didn't, didn't already have one. So there's, there's really great stuff being hinted at here. You know, not leaving the path, seeing lights um, on the in the woods away from the trail. Makes me think of the, the folklore of Will of the Wisp, the mysterious light in the woods or on the bog that leads you from the true path to your doom. And of course, anybody uh, who is Irish or has uh, an interest in Irish folklore, this will make you think of the various stories of the little people or the Dina Sheeha from my own country as well. Interestingly, everything I've read about Tolkien suggests that he did draw a line in the sand between what he considered to be Celtic mythology and then sort of Anglo-Saxon sources. So I think to him, he was deliberately trying to draw on the latter and not the former. And there's some evidence to show that he he didn't he wasn't interested or he considered himself uninterested in Celtic folklore. But I, I think in truth, it's difficult to divorce those two strands of folklore because of the various groups of people who have lived in the same islands for so long that they're not true separate they're not they're not entirely separate strands of belief i think anyway that's my sort of that was my initial uh, reaction to this stick indian story and uh, you know as a european and, and as a fan of science fiction and, and and classic fantasy that was my immediate reaction i was very excited to be able to make that connection between these, you know, admittedly two very different and separated cultures, but seeing some of the same motifs showing up, the the fear of being lost in the forest, the, the fear that there was something out there, something mysterious, that this was a place where you could commune with the other world. And I think that's something that is common across different kinds of cultures, even ones which have been separated for vast amounts of time. Anyway, with a bit of poking around online, I found a little bit more information about um, the, the quote-unquote stick Indians, and I'm going to continue with the sort of Reddit-style personal story folklore angle before I go a bit deeper. So this is from somebody just calling himself Batku, and this is from nwhikers.net. So this is again another sort of a personal story. So make of this what you will. But he says, New Year's Eve, 1991. My wife and I were walking into Boulder Cave at about 8 or 9 p.m. There was very little snow on the trail. It was a clear, brilliant night. No moon but crisp stars and the occasional cloud. It was dark, but we had flashlights and warm clothes, and we were walking in to meet some friends and spend the night at the cave to celebrate New Year's Eve. Uh, back then, the USFS, that's the Forest Service, wasn't worried about bats and you could hike into the cave at any time of the year. He then goes on a bit of a rant about the, the Forest Service and uh, there's some so, some mildly anti-conservationist stuff which I'm not going to read here. Anyway, it's irrelevant. He says, as we, <clears throat> as we made our way up the trail, uh, well made, not very steep, winding through the darkened pines, we could hear children's voices in the distance, like a schoolyard or a playground or a yard full of happy children running and yelling and laughing far away. At first, we tried to think of what it could be, Maybe someone in a cabin or people staying at camp at Rogananda, but on our way in, we'd seen no cars or tracks or sign of anyone else in the area. Rogananda was closed down tight, and no camps, lights or fires off in the distance or by the road. 
What was a large group of children doing, playing loudly in the distance, up a canyon, in the middle of the woods, on New Year's Eve? There was an odd, consistent quality to the laughing children noise. It faded in and out of hearing, just on the edge of being there, carried by the wind, as if from a great distance, funneled and shaped by the mountains and trees and streams, until it found our ears, then back out again to be lost for a moment, only to return. Laughing, yelling, calling, playing children, fading in and out as we would stop and listen till it went away, and then walk a few dozen more yards only to stop and listen again. Anyway, we got to the cave and told our friends about it and puzzled together, but forgot about it after a while and played our flutes and listened to New Age music with cassette tapes and burned candles and taught philosophy and mystery and deep meaning around the fire until the wee hours of the morning. Walking out, something had changed subtly. The woods seemed a bit ominous. Maybe we were just tired, but as we made our way down the trail, my wife spotted something odd propped against the base of a tree. It was meant to be found, I think, by us. We thought at the time that it had been left for us by whoever or whatever made the laughing noises. It is impossible to adequately describe the object. My wife says it was a man, a figurine of a human. I have to believe her because when I try to picture it, my mind draws a blank. Its construction was like nothing I've ever seen before or since. It was a small abstract figurine woven of tiny sticks, moss, pine needles and lichen. The bare hair moss had been braided in individual strands into tiny ropes, which wove in and out of bits of lichen and tiny sticks around some bigger sticks, smaller than the diameter of a pencil. And keep in mind, no one else had been to the cave while we were there. No cars, footprints, no marks in the snow, nothing. I put it in my pack, took it home and kept it for a while. Brooding, examining it closely for clues about I don't know what. This writer mentions that sometime later he gets some information from a co-worker who has a Native American background and mentions um, a little information about what he then calls stick Indians. No one to my knowledge has ever encountered a stick Indian and survived to talk about it. So the myth as recounted to me and what little I can find to read about them is that stick Indians are small, vicious and cunning. Semi-man-like but about three to four feet tall and very skinny with elongated arms and legs and sharp teeth and claws on their hands and feet. They live in deep forests and are occasionally heard, but never seen. The laughing that we heard is how they lure victims out into the forest, where they become disorientated and lost as they attempt to locate the children playing in the woods. If the victim is an adult, the presumption is that they are attacked and eaten, and whatever remains after the stick Indians are fed is never found. If the victim is a small child, the stick Indians turn them into another stick Indian through some dark magic. This is how they get new recruits. Once again, this is not something we can um, either choose to believe or not believe. There's no evidence for it. It's just a spooky story on a message board. Elements of Blair Witch Project here. Just to point out the original stories from 2008, quite a few years after the Blair Witch movie. So, you know, it's entirely possible that somebody has embroidered this legend uh, with with memories of that particular film but interestingly given that this is a forum about hiking and not one about you know spooky stories there's a lot of people in the comments who seem to have had similar experiences people saying things like i would dismiss it as a story if it had not been told to me in the last two years by two separate people who do not know one another to whom this happened in two different areas of british columbia so there's a lot of stories in the comments about people 
we seem to have had uh, similar experiences. So I'm aware that so far we've examined sort of Westerners talking about this story and interpreting a, a, a native story an, or a Native American story. And one thing I am interested in, firstly, is the mythology of it, the, the contemporary folklore, the sort of urban legend campfire version of it, which I suppose is largely a Western creation. There's always the chance that this is a Western misinterpretation of an original story, maybe arguably similar to what Western people have made of the original Sasquatch stories or any number of other things as well. So what I decided to do was look a little bit more into the origins of this story from different parts of North America. So I have an article from a group called the Mohegan Tribe who are based in the middle of New York State and they are associated with an area called Mohegan Hill. And on their own website, they discuss a, a similar story about little people of the forest. And the name they use in that region is the Makayawizug. And they state, the, the rocks of Mohegan Hill are the home of the Makayawizug, or little people. After nightfall, the call of the Whippoorwill signals their arrival. They are good spirits, but the Mohegans know they must be treated with respect and according to tradition. It is important to leave baskets of food, such as corn, cakes, and berries, or even meat in the woods for them. Wearing moccasin flowers for shoes, they gather the gifts at night. In fact, Makayawisug means whip poor will moccasins. They have their own rules of etiquette. Those who see the little people should not look directly at them. They think it's rude. If they catch you staring, they might point a finger at you, rooting you to the ground, while they take your belongings. Another rule is don't speak of them in the summer when they are most active. But in return for kindness, they taught the Mohegan people how to grow corn and use healing plants. They keep the earth well and grant favours for those who honour their ways. When the English settlers came and disrupted the traditional way of Mohegan life, many forgot to help the Makayawisug. As a result, many Mohegans and Makayawisug fell ill. At this time of bad spirits, there lived a medicine woman, one night during a terrible storm, she heard the whip poor will. When she looked outside, the bird wasn't to be found, but a small boy stood in the rain on her doorstep. It turned out he was a grown Wisug named Weegun, who told her to come help someone who was sick. Once again, though the details are, are different, I, I can't help but notice overall parallels to stories of European little people, and in particular Irish ones. Probably the, the biggest holdover is the idea that they're not necessarily entirely good or bad, that they're people to be respected, sometimes feared that if you treat them well, they will treat you well, but who will take a, a revenge if you don't. And that's quite similar to how the little people appear in Irish folklore. They're people who must be respected, but people who are often to be feared as well. Now, I have an article called The Cherokee Legend of the Little People by David Farris, who gives a kind of a useful rundown of how this particular legend has manifested itself in different parts of North America according to different groups of people. He mentions James Mooney in Myths of the Cherokee, published in the 19th Annual Report of the Bureau of American Ethnology, 1897, describes these little people as hardly reaching up to a man's knee, but well-shaped and handsome, with long hair falling almost to the ground. More than 100 years later, this magical race of little people is very real to those who learned the legend from their elders. Much of Mooney's research involved Cherokee from their original homeland of North Carolina. He learned that due to forced migration, 
The Cherokee of Oklahoma became estranged from their original customs and beliefs. Traditions handed down throughout generations became tainted by the white man's education and culture. However, many Cherokee legends did endure the cultural transition. One example is the belief in a race of small magical beings called the Yunwi Sundi. Betty J. Lombardi elaborated on Mooney's finding with additional research of her own in the spring 1984 issue of Mid-American Folklore, published by the Ozark State Folklore Society and the Regional Culture Centre. This is from Arkansas College. Her article comments on the little people's stories collected from the Cherokee Indians of Northeast Oklahoma revealed these accounts. The little people of Cherokee folklore were capable of doing good deeds for people who treated them with respect. However, to look upon one was bad luck, potentially resulting in premature death. Such was the case with people lost in the woods who were rescued by these mythical beings. After finding their way home, they told of their strange encounters and then died. Usually those who encounter the little people are warned by them not to tell others. It is considered bad luck to even speak of the little people. Instead, they are more safely referred to as skilly, which means witch or ghost. Next, I have a story that comes to us uh, through the writing of a kind of turn of the 20th century woman named Ella Mabel Powers. Um, now, she uses a, a native name for herself. She calls herself Yes and No Wes. Uh, this book is from 1917. We get into some sort of mm, sticky territory here. There's definitely a paternalistic tone to her writings about Native American culture. Uh, she basically spent a whole lot of her life living amongst um, Native people and was sort of given an honorary position with the with the Iroquois tribe. So I guess, you know, depending on how you would like to interpret this, uh, it was a positive thing, I suppose, that she was recording their stories and writing books and uh, making this information available to uh, a wider range of people. However, you know, it's it's 1917. Some of her attitude is definitely a little patronizing. There's definitely a touch of the quote-unquote noble savage going on here. So interpret, you know, take that for what you will and recognize that, as in many cases from around the world where cultures have been lost, that which has is still available to us is being given to us through the veneer of a conquering people, so to speak. But it's still it's still of interest, and this is still one of the ways in which we can collect um, information about the original stories. So she writes, These fairies the Iroquois call the Jogao, or little people, because they are so small. The little people can do wonderful things. Whatever they wish, they can do. They can fly through the air. They can dart under or through the water, into the earth, and through the rocks as they please, for they wear invisible moccasins and travel in winged canoes. Their wee babies are carried on the little mother's backs, just like the Indian's papoose. The little fathers have wonderful winged bows and arrows that can shoot any distance they wish. The little people bring good luck to the Indians. Whatever Indian boys and girls wish for, if they wish hard enough, the Joe Ga'o will bring to them. It is said that there are three tribes of these little people, those that live in the rocks beside streams and lakes, those that hover near the flowers and plants, and those that guard the dark places under the earth. The rock little people are very strong. They can uproot large trees and can hurl great rocks. Sometimes they dare the Indians to a test of strength with them. They also like to play ball with stones. Um, the natives fear the stone throwers, as they call them. But they love the little folk that help the flowers to blossom 
and the fruit and grains to grow and ripen. A tribe of little people dwell under the earth. They guard the sacred white buffaloes and keep the serpent monsters that live in the darkness below from coming to the surface to the native children. And that's from a book called Stories the Iroquois Tell Their Children um, by Mabel Powers from 1917. One thing you can probably tell and you've probably noticed already is that there's a very wide range of features and, and characteristics and behaviours attributed to these people. So they were found across the North American continent, but they had different names as, you know, given to them by different groups of people. And in some cases they seem to be positive and some they seem to be negative. In some they seem to be helpful and in some they seem not to be. Again, as exactly what you would expect from such a wide range of different groups of people. One thing from my own experience I'd like to bring in here was uh, during my time in the American Midwest, I um, ha had the I was lucky enough to meet some um, Native American scholars whose part of their job was writing books about mythology and I was I guess this had never really occurred to me but I, I was astonished how open and free they were about um, pointing out that part of their job was creating new things and you know using what they had from their culture that was still available to them but kind of creating new stories or at least you know guessing as to what some of the original stories might have been and as they put it themselves in their own words you know, when a culture has been so thoroughly wiped out uh, uh, that only a few people remain and a lot of the stories have been lost, you know, it's up to them to come up with a new one that makes sense for them and use the best that they can from their own history. And I was astonished that they would be so frank about this, but it, it makes perfect sense. And really, it's not much different to, for example, what, what's known as the Celtic Twilight, which is that really interesting time in the late 19th century, early 20th century in Ireland when a whole bunch of academics and poets and artists became fascinated by reinventing the concept of Irishness you know as being opposed and different to Englishness for example this being you know the height of empire and deciding to look into Irish history and recreate the language recreate the Irish sports and they, they chose elements from Irish history and mythology uh, you know some of which we had good information about but lots of which we didn't and so we had to sort of recreate them we recreated the game of hurling with very little you know we knew there was a game with that name but we're not certain how it was played there was information about the irish language but it had never been um codified i suppose in with with dictionaries and with with written grammar so that had to happen and place names had to be uh, laid down in stone with with official ex uh, spellings and uh, and versions local versions of them so there was definitely the recreation of a sort of a Celtic identity at that time, which if you wanted to be a real historical stick in the mud, you know, a lot of it was, was new and made up and fictional. And yet that can have just as much relevance and just as much importance as anything else. And now, you know, 150 years later, we hold those things very dear and we're very proud of them. And it, it in a way it represents, you know, a group of intelligent and creative people scholars and artists as i said trying to come up with the best from their own their own history and myth and, and fashioning a new positive image for themselves at a time when they were you know they saw themselves as maybe being downtrodden by by the empire and this was exactly what was happening in north america with some of these groups of people who you know had to recreate their self-image with when so much had been lost so again one of the other reasons why i think studying these stories um, is so interesting 
I have another story here from the BFRO. That's the uh, Bigfoot Research Organization in the US, and take that for what you will. Uh, I will say they, they do some good stuff. They do some stuff that's not so good. In terms of being a repository of old stories and legends and lore, I find them pretty interesting. They have pretty good collections of older stuff that I do find it difficult to find sometimes. So what they have here is um, a section called Pre-Columbian and Early American Legends of well, Bigfoot-like beings. But they also have a section on uh, Little People Legends from the Native Americans. And as always with stories like this, what you're dealing with is you know, a, a potential Native American legend being told to you through the medium of a, a Western sort of colonial take on it. But sometimes uh, with the early material, that is the best that we're going to get. So it says here, a Yakima Indian, Simon Goody, told the following story about the Steyaha, or Stick Shower Indians, to L.V. McWhorter in 1916. The Steyaha Ma, or Stick Shower, are a mysterious and dangerous people whose general habitat is the lofty forest regions of the Cascade Mountains. They haunt the tangled timber falls which serve them as domiciles or lodges. They are as large as the ordinary Indian. Their language is to mimic notes of birds and animals. Nocturnal in habit, they sleep or remain in seclusion during the day and consequently are seen only on very rare occasions. It is under the cover of darkness that they perform the acts which have fastened upon them the odious appellation Stick Shower. It is then that they thrust sticks through any opening of the teepee or hunter's lodge, or shower sticks upon the belated traveller. The Indian who is delayed or lost from the trail is very apt to receive their attention. He may hear a signal, perhaps a whistle, ahead of him. Should he follow the sound, it will be repeated for a time. Then he will hear it in the opposite direction, along the path he has just passed. If he turns back, it will only be to detect the mysterious noises elsewhere, leading to utter confusion and bewilderment. When the traveller is crazed with dread or overcome by exhaustion and sleep, it is then that the stick shower scores a victory. Regaining his head or awakening from slumber, the wanderer is more than likely to find himself stripped of all clothing, perhaps bound and trussed with thongs. He is fortunate to escape with his life. Now this sort of thing really reminds me of some of the early Pacific Northwest Native American stories that kind of get lumped in with the Bigfoot legends. Uh, for more information on that, do check out our double episode, Bigfoot Before 1958. It covers a lot of this material. On the one hand, it just shows the the, the wideness, the, the range of stories associated both with the little people and with Bigfoot. Really the only connection here to the little people stories is the name, the, the stick shower or the stick Indians. Some of the behaviors are similar with uh, throwing sticks and, and attacking people and being kind of like small, like trickster figures of the forest. But in other ways, this fits in more with the supposed Bigfoot legends. Uh, in particular, some things which have made their way right to Bigfoot lore today with the supposed um, stick throwing and rock throwing and stuff like that. Uh, some of which does show up in these very early stories. Now, one of the reasons, one of the things that kind of kept this myth going uh, as late as the 20th century was uh, a small sort of a Fortean artifact, a Fortean story, uh, known as the San Pedro Mummy. So, in a place in Wyoming, near, near the town of Casper, Wyoming, is a region called the San Pedro Mountains. And at some point in the 1930s, there were a pair of gold prospectors by the name of Cecil Maine and Frank Carr. Uh, who supposedly were 
were searching for gold and found a cave and inside the cave there was a ledge up on the side and on top of the ledge was a small mummy of a tiny person. Now to look at it's uh, it looks like it's a little bit like E.T. actually it's like a small sort of an alien like creature it's it looks like it's a, it's a tiny person with large bulbous eyes and um, a slightly slightly unnerving facial expression uh, it's very thin it's very wizened and it's really really tiny it's only about it's only about 15 inches high or something like that now this was photographed in 19, in about 1950 it was owned by um, a local businessman and sort of a, an enthusiast of history named Bob David and it seems to have disappeared shortly after that and a lot of the details about what happened to it before and after are a little bit in question. There is an affidavit supposedly written by the two guys who found it but various newspaper accounts from early, the early days of this going right up until the 70s give conflicting dates, conflicting details. However what is known is that it certainly existed in or around Casper, Wyoming um, for at least a couple of decades before 1950 it was owned by various people who showed it off as a curiosity and then it seems to have disappeared round about 1950. It was photographed and x-rayed it is definitely a real person you can see the skeleton within um, however while people made the attempt to try and show that this was evidence of a, an actual historical race of tiny people living in North America and perhaps might have been the origin for some of the legends we've been talking about it does seem a more realistic take that this was in fact uh, a tiny uh, a baby essentially uh, with a condition known as anencephaly meaning that the the brain fails to develop and therefore the body fails to develop and uh, people with this condition unfortunately are born with a very reduced skull and tend not to live more than just a few hours after birth so even though this was advertised as an old man in his 60s uh, who was tiny it seems the reality is that it was in fact a baby. So I think that just remains as a sort of a mid-century oddity, the sort of thing that would show up in, you know, Frank Edward books and later on maybe Colin Wilson books and that sort of thing. So not too much more to say about that really. Continuing down the road of actual real-life physical uh, remains, which sort of fed into the legend of little people around the world, uh, I, I would be remiss not to mention the, the case of the Homo floresiensis, which was, of course, known as the Hobbit. This was, a fi this was far, far away from the regions we've been talking about. This was in Indonesia. But I distinctly remember this happening at the time. This was uh, discovered in 2003. I remember following the various controversies associated with it as the scientific ideas about what this represented went back and forth. It was a very exciting time I was in. Uh, just before I was in university actually and um, studying uh, biology and zoology so this was something I followed very closely. So what happened was in 2003 a joint Indonesian and Australian research team were in a tiny island called Flores in Indonesia and in a cave known as the Lying Bua which to this day remains the only place where any anything like this has been found they found the remains of what appeared to be a tiny human. So this was a person at about 106 centimeters high and this became nicknamed of course in the media the Hobbit because it sort of matches roughly the dimensions of the, the Hobbit people from Tolkien. There's our second Tolkien reference of the episode. The reason this was kind of a big deal for a lot of people in cryptozoology worlds or folklore worlds was that 
it's true that there are worldwide stories about little people. It just seems to be one of those things that's built into us. Just as there are stories worldwide about legends, um, you know, feeding into the various Bigfoot stories, there are also stories about little people. Now, I want to be absolutely clear here. I'm not a fan of what's called hyperdiffusionism, which is the sort of Victorian Edwardian obsession with the idea that all cultures must have come from one place and that, you know, if you look at these similarities between cultures and try and draw connections, it means that, you know, people must all have come from one place because unfortunately that tends to lead you down the road to a, a sort of Atlantis beliefs and super civilization beliefs and eventually ancient astronaut beliefs. And uh, if that sounds a little wacky, go check out our episode about Jack London and the ancient aliens for more information about why that road leads exactly the way it does. So I'm absolutely not trying to make the case that the fact that there are similar legends about little people in North America and Southeast Asia and also here in Ireland, I'm not saying that there is any sort of literal uh, genetic or cultural link there. I think it's something that crops up again and again for reasons which are perhaps more to do with the way we think of nature, the way we think of the wilderness around us. However, people made much of The Hobbit at the time, and what was kind of exciting about it was that the very first um, estimations that came out were that this creature, which, which appeared to be another type of hominid, so it's in, it's in the same genus as us, so we're Homo sapiens, this is Homo floresiensis, we're talking very, very closely related indeed, only very slight. And what was exciting was that at first it seemed that it was a relatively recent living hominid, perhaps only as little as nine to 12,000 years ago. So certainly beyond recorded history, but certainly within the time that anatomically modern humans would have been on the scene. So that's very exciting. We, we, we don't have any, you know, re remembered or recorded or written evidence of humans interacting with other other types of hominids. Editing key in here with a quick word about taxonomy. Um, uh, the, the use of the word hominid has changed over time. It originally meant just humans and our closest relatives. It has changed a little bit since then. It is now used to refer to us, but also the still living great apes. Uh, in this conversation, what I probably should have said is hominin, meaning just humans and our closest relatives. However, I do read a lot of older cryptozoological literature, which has the older use of the term. So this was this would have been like the most recent one. Obviously, we were on the scene at the same time as Neanderthals and, and things like that, but that was so long ago that we don't have... It's, it's very difficult to interpret what those relationships would have been like. There's a lot of disagreements and arguments about whether, you know, modern humans warred with Neanderthals or simply outbred them, which currently, based on genetics, seems to be the most likely thing. But it, yeah, very exciting that humans might have been on the scene um, at the same time as the, as the Hobbit, and that th therefore this might have fed into various mythological ideas about little people. So the idea that there's race memory, that maybe these stories have a, a kernel of truth at the bottom of them, that they are some kind of memory of remembering uh, coexisting with these other creatures. And there are local legends um, in that part of Indonesia that people pointed to, but I mean, you could say that about almost anywhere on Earth, and we don't have remains of people like this in all of the different countries and cultures that do have stories of little people. So I think it's a bit of a misdirection, but an interesting one anyway. As it happened, the current thinking is that these, th these, you know, types of different types of humans 
were actually living quite a long time before that. So it now looks like somewhere between 80 to 100,000 years ago, rather than the kind of 9 to 12 that was originally thought. There were also a lot of disagreements about whether it was actually a separate species. There were cases made that this, these were just ordinary anatomically modern humans that had various um, health conditions that stunted their growth or their brain size. But the current, the current thinking is that indeed they are a separate species, which is still pretty exciting. Now, uh, I've been mentioning that there are similar stories to these little people stories here in Ireland, and I want to bring in a special friend of the show to talk about this, as he has more uh, knowledge about this than I do. So, so helping out on this topic is Mr. Andrew Byrne, a historian with an academic background in Celtic civilization, amongst other things. And I put to him the question of explaining exactly what the little people of Ireland, or the Dina Sheeha, really are. This is perhaps the easiest and the hardest thing to try and define, largely because according to tradition, you don't actually call them by their proper title. So we would refer to them now as you know the fairies, the little folk, the little people, the wee folk in Scotland. Um, we could call them the Dina Shi, the Shioga, uh, whatever you want to call them, but Ultimately, you shouldn't call them the Shioga or the Dina Shi directly to the face. There's actually a tradition that says you would call them the the good people, the the gentle folk, the gentlemen, the the noble people. Um, and this, in a way, is to try and bestow some kind of benevolent or kindness towards them to try not invoke their evil spirits. Um, so there's an an easy answer to that is fairies everyone calls them fairies nowadays the hard part is there's so many other names for them that come from various traditions within ireland uh, just to try and yeah bestow some kindness upon them there's actually two traditions that come about from this idea uh, the first is they are the tuatha de Danann or the tuatha de Danann, um the people of the goddess danu these are a mythological kind of race of gods and demigods that are really mentioned in what's known as the mythological cycle in medieval Irish uh, storytelling and you know traditional narratives. Um, the mythological cycle really focuses around the Tuatha Dé Danann. They're prominent in a story called the Book of Invasions, which appears somewhere between the 8th and 12th centuries in Ireland. And the Book of Invasions is really trying to create like a, a narrative history of Ireland or a fanciful narrative history of Ireland. Um, the Tuatha de Danann are said to be this strange race of beings who descend into Ireland from clouds, possibly from silver ships landing on mountains. Um, they come in and essentially they, they take over, defeating a very nefarious race of kind of sea beings or sea monsters. They take over Ireland, but are eventually deposed by a human race or, or a race of man called the Sons of Meal or the Milesians, as they get known later on. Um, when they get defeated, it is said that they came to an agreement that they would live underground. They won't be completely deposed of, but they won't be completely allowed to live above ground. They'll be kind of exiled to live in caves, to live in 
underground areas and tunnels and lakes and mountains but more importantly they'll get to live in what's known as sheaths or she as we know them and these are kind of what we now equate with the fairy mounds or you know as an archaeologist now they we'd call them i suppose prehistoric passage tombs prehistoric uh, neolithic bronze age kind of burial mounds um, referred to in medieval ireland as these she's or sheath and that's where we get the name Dina She. It's the people of the sheaths. Uh, they're often equated to be this kind of entrance to the other world or underground. And that's where the real link between this supernatural kind of race of gods and demigods get linked into this underground race who live inside these, you know, underground burial mounds, passage tombs, this kind of strange link to the other world. Um, it's quite a nice story there. Uh, actually a collection of stories as to how they really came into being but the two of they did on and eventually get equated to this underground race however in around the 15th and 16th century there is a movement across Europe that starts equating a lot of the old gods with devils and demons in the Christian theology and in Ireland it's around the 16th century that someone starts equating the two of they did on and the Dean of she with fallen angels believe it or not. So after Lucifer has his rebellion and his uprising in heaven, he gets cast down to hell. But what happens, the angels who neither supported Lucifer nor supported God, they actually get cast out. And in the 16th century Irish tradition, they get sent down to Ireland as these rebel, well, not rebel angels, these castaway angels, and they end up living as this supernatural folk, the supernatural race who then live similar to the way the old tooth I did on and did in these underground passage rooms in this kind of benevolent if you're kind to them but very malevolent if you cross them kind of race this kind of strange superstitious beings that are hidden away from life but they'll come out if if you cross them um, so it's actually those kind of two traditions there which is quite cool in my opinion <laughs> when it comes to yeah, the Edwardian period or I suppose late Victorian the Celtic twilight as you call it there's a big push to try and I suppose front a national narrative even more so um, I know in Ireland there's a, a very strong connection to the Celtic past um, which I know we've talked about many times before um, in that instance I don't necessarily think that they're trying to portray the fairies as one thing or another I think they're definitely trying to connect them to the two of the Dedan and to try and propose an even longer lineage of I suppose stories and oral traditions and, and you know cultural narrative that's there that was being done in around the you know between the 11th and the 17th centuries. In a lot of the early stories where they pop up even in relation to early Irish uh, you know literary characters and things like Ectronera they can be Sorry, Ectronair is a story about this man who goes into a sheath, goes into one of these under otherworld uh, underground mounds and comes into the summer's feast and there's quite a lot of play on words. Um, you have to follow certain rules and if those rules are broken then they do become nefarious. And a lot of the later stories, um, even right through the 12th, 13th century versions of these, even coming up to the 17th, 18th, 19th century, you're nice to them, they're nice to you. If you cross them, they're not nice to you. Um, and that even survives right up to even nowadays i uh, i think many years ago there was you know, dare i say like the the sheehy rays i don't know what they call them the healy rays down in Kerry, 
Um, and a lot of people in the rural countryside who still believe that you know these ring forts, these old medieval and prehistoric monuments, if you tinker with them, if you damage them, bad stuff will happen, and they still equate that. Huge thanks to Mr. Andrew Byrne for his expertise, and huge thanks to him for speaking with us today on this episode. You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I think we might have Andrew on again sometime. We've been planning an episode all about the Celtic Twilight, which we mentioned briefly. That is the movement in Ireland in the 19th and early 20th century, when we really started to sort of reinvent our self-image and dig deep into history and mythology and pick out the bits we like and give them a bit of a shine and sort of reinterpret what it does mean to be Irish. So there's a lot of interesting fringe topics and weird thinking that came out of that movement, and I'm excited to have Andrew on again in the future to uh, talk about such things. So what can you do at home to help out the show if you enjoy it? First off, please do subscribe. Please leave reviews. Those are really helpful. Stars and something written as well. If you come up with something clever or witty, we'll read it out on the show. We'll be more than happy to do that. If you have any ideas for episodes or if anything weird or spooky has ever happened to you, we'd love to know about it. You can find us online in two places. We are still on Twitter at, at Strange Ireland and we're on Instagram as well where we are uh, white, just White Atlantic Weird Podcast. So we'll catch you then. Uh, stay safe. And once again, thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.